I'm Jeff Cohen. The name Gary Wallach might ring a bell for Saturday to Shabbos listeners because I mention it every week in the credits. That's because he's our producer. His life path has led him through rock and roll venues throughout North America and Europe, one of the country's biggest NPR stations, and to tour observance. He now works on podcasts for two of the most influential Orthodox Jewish institutions in the United States. I would say welcome, Gary, but you're kind of already here in a sense, so how do you think I should introduce you? Well, how about welcome back, Gary? How, do, how does that work for you, Jeff? I will accept it. And I, I think our listeners probably don't realize that every time that we're talking to a guest, you are there as well, listening and texting me advice and things to uh, improve the quality of the questions and the interview overall. So let me just say for all of our listeners, thank you for everything you do for our podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. I love working on this podcast. That was smart to say, Gary. So I appreciate you saying that live <laughs> on the air. All right. So the beauty of today is instead of being the producer, you're actually our guest because you have as fascinating a story as all the folks we've had on here before. So let's dive into yours and give us a sense of where you grew up. Well, I've always lived in eastern Massachusetts. I grew up in a, a town called Brookline, which is just to the west of Boston, a great place to grow up. So I know Brookline because all of my cousins are in Needham, and when I go up there, they take me to Brookline for the kosher restaurants. But the fact that you're on this podcast tells me that your connection to Brookline wasn't with the Orthodox community when you were a kid. Not really, although that's a bit of a complicated answer. So when I was six years old, my mother remarried a Jewish man, and we moved into an apartment in Brookline. And I, I know that you and I, we've talked about how in all of these stories that we've presented on Saturday to Shabbos, our interviewees have had what we call breadcrumbs that Hashem leaves for them. And sometimes the trail is a very short one. Sometimes it's a very long one. In my case, it was a very long one. But when I was five, my mother remarried a Jewish man, and he was not observant at all. But his grandfather was. We used to visit him pretty much every week. And he loved my sister and me, and I, that was my chance to start learning a little bit about Judaism, although my stepfather wanted nothing to do with it when I was six. Our first Hanukkah together, I uh, declared that we needed a Hanukkah menorah because he was Jewish, and he just was not interested. But um, really, the, the journey started for me when, uh, at that age of six, I believe it was, I was rummaging through the drawers in the side tables to our couch in the living room, and I found a little, what I would later learn was a memorial booklet. My stepfather's father had died a few months before that, and I just had to know what those letters were. And my stepfather walked in on me re trying to read this book while putting a little, uh, like a nylon yarmulke on my head, and he thought that was kind of amusing. And I asked him to help me read those words. I wanted to know what they said, and he he just kind of chuckled and laughed it off. But from that point on, I wanted to know what those letters meant. And it started me on what would be a very long journey. But when, you're, when your mom marries a guy who's Jewish, were there conversations within your family about the fact that this was an intermarriage and what it might mean for what your family believed beforehand and what you might be doing going forward? There were no conversations at all, as I recall. My mom and my stepfather might have had those at some point, but I don't think that those would have gone very far because he just wasn't interested in Jewish observance at all. As I said, I, I started getting some information from his grandfather, who was a wonderful man, and I started befriending people in the neighborhood, Jewish kids, and started getting a little 
bit of an idea of what Jewish life meant. I was fascinated by the mezuzah. I had to know what those were. And I, I got somewhat satisfactory explanations about those. But um, yeah, that led me to later when we moved to another town, I was a voracious reader and I started reading about Jewish history, Jewish custom, and then later to the Holocaust. And it was at that point when I was about 10 or 11 that I went to my mother and I said, I want to be Jewish. How do I become Jewish? And she gave me an answer that was sort of half true. She said, well, you can't become Jewish because I'm not Jewish. And if you're a Jew, your mother's a Jew. And uh, she was leading out, leaving out, obviously, half of the equation. I believed her at the time, and I was sort of disappointed, and I sort of forgot about that stuff for a little while. But the, the breadcrumbs just kept on coming. But as you're growing up, you're in public school, just surrounded by all different religions, having like a typical public school upbringing. Are you doing holidays across the two religions at all? Like, are you having a Christmas tree? Are you getting Hanukkah gifts? Like, which things are you doing or not doing between the two religions? We're not doing Hanukkah at all. We're doing the Christian winter holiday, which uh, I have to say in my family was great because there was no religion in it at all. I grew up with no religion other than what I was learning about Judaism. Uh, you know, I would go to churches for funerals, weddings, confirmations for my cousins. And I'm trying to find the most diplomatic way to put this. I always felt completely out of place in a church. And I felt like I didn't belong there ever. And that raised a very big question with me because I always believed in God I knew that there was a creator. I absolutely knew it, but I knew that that faith tradition wasn't for me. So, uh, you know, the, as I say, the breadcrumbs kept on coming when I was 14. I met this uh, friend of a friend who was in town for a couple of weeks. He was from a modern Orthodox family. He was about my age, 13 or 14. And we spent a couple of weeks together just hanging out and maybe talking a little bit about Judaism, but mostly about pop music and other stuff. And um, at the end of that trip, I rode my bike down to my friend's house to say goodbye to this guy. He's from L.A. He and his family were from L.A. And as I rode away, he said, hey, Gary. And I stopped and I looked back and he said, you'd make a good Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and Why? I thought, yeah, I know. And I thought, boy, there's, there's, there's something here that's just not leaving me alone. Huh. So as you talk about these breadcrumbs, and a lot of them are happening at a pretty young age when people wouldn't necessarily be exploring their belief system, what do you think was attracting you to Judaism? What was turning you on about it? I wish I could articulate that. I don't really know the answer to that. But when I think about this, I think about the many incidences like this that just seemingly came out of the blue. When I was 10, I suffered a pretty traumatic dental uh, emergency. I took a golf club to the front teeth. I lost my front row of teeth. Ouch. Yeah, it was not fun. And it required uh, several weeks of work, dental work. And I was in the dentist office a lot, which meant that, of course, I was waiting a lot. And I remember I was a voracious reader and I, I was reading through everything, including the King James Bible that was uh, in, the, in the waiting room. And even with the poor translation of what it called the Old Testament, I was somehow drawn to those stories very, very strongly, whereas I was not interested in the New Testament at all. And, um, you know, the, the story of Moshe at the burning bush, 
the story of the exodus from Egypt, these things just resonated very deeply with me, and I couldn't figure out why. I, I guess I, I still can't in a way. They just seemed true to me. They seemed real to me. They touched me in a way that I couldn't quite explain. And that just kept propelling me forward. Even when I was trying to bury that and not think about it, it kept coming back in other ways. You were talking about being 14 and, and the friend that you met, and so now you're getting closer to the college years. So I would be curious where you went, what you thought you wanted to study, and how you were identifying yourself to your friends when you met them anytime religion came up. I would identify myself as an agnostic, I think. But, uh, you know, I went through high school. I somehow survived high school. And I had a few Jewish kids. I always had Jewish uh, friends in school, elementary, junior high, and high school. And that was great. But my sophomore year of college, I'll never forget this moment, September of 1981, this young lady walked into the commuter lounge and immediately I felt a connection with her, even though we hadn't spoken a word. And I remember thinking to myself, if someone like that were interested in me, my life would be pretty great. I was 18 years old at the time and she was 17. And that was Natalie, who would, I'm going to spoil the, uh, the ending here. She, she ended up being my wife. Um, but um, we got to know each other a little bit. We chatted. And uh, I was always very shy around women. And, uh, but I was not shy around her. And I felt very comfortable with her. We, we talked a lot. And I learned that she was Jewish. And I thought that was great. And we became very close very quickly. And that was the next step in my learning more about Judaism and starting to experience it firsthand when, you know, we'd go to family events, Passover seders, uh, you know, social events at the shul that she and her family went to in Malden, Massachusetts. And uh, that began making me interested again in not only learning more, but maybe considering being part of the Jewish nation. How did her family feel about the fact that you technically were not Jewish? Because you often hear families when they're raising Jewish kids say, I want you to marry Jewish. So she at some point tells her family, I met this great guy. Is he Jewish? No, but he's interested. I'm, I would guess is how she positioned it. What, were the, what was that like? I don't think she said she was interested to them because I was kind of keeping that close to the vest. But her father, Oliver Sholom, really didn't like me at first. And I have to say that I never blamed him for that. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I, well, I mean, I, I have to say I was, I was respectful. I was a good kid. I was a good student. I was never in trouble or any of that stuff. But I wasn't Jewish. And it was important for him to have his daughters be uh, interested in Jewish people and being part of the Jewish nation and raising Jewish families. So I, I, I never held that against him. But he got to like me as, you know, we got to know each other. He came to respect me. I came to respect him. And uh, it wasn't until later I made a more serious commitment to the idea that I should be a Jew. But uh, things were okay for, for quite some time. Okay, so going back to this moment, you said you're 18 and she's 17, and you think to yourself, this is the kind of person that I could be with. So I thought maybe the next thing you were going to say, and six months later we were married, but something tells me your story is not going to go like that. So do you date through college, or what, what point are you at as the college years end and you're in your early 20s? Yeah, so uh, we graduated college and then became working people. Very shortly after I graduated, my work involved being in a touring rock band. 
So I, <laughs> I did that from really spring of 1987 until summer of 1992. And so I wasn't thinking about marriage. Looking back, I should have been from the beginning because I knew that I loved her and I knew that I couldn't imagine my life without her. But like a lot of modern young people, we didn't have that commitment to get married right away. So I, I toured for many, many years. And again, Hashem left me a, a breadcrumb while I was on tour with the band. And the band was called Big Dipper, not the rapper from Chicago, but the pop band <laughs> from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and um, Hashem, as I say, Hashem left a breadcrumb, or I should say many, many huge loaves of bread in my path. We toured in Europe twice, and the first time we ended up in a town outside of Frankfurt, Germany, called Gaunhausen. And this is sort of a long story in itself, but I'll, I'll try to tell it in a streamlined way. So we, we were playing in Frankfurt, and the promoter of the show shows up at the club. And uh, we might have been playing in Gelnhausen, actually. And the promoter showed up at the club and he said, do you have, uh, do you guys want to save some money on your hotel? You can stay with me. I live with my grandparents. And we said, yeah, sure. So after sound check, we dropped our luggage off at this house. It's like a 600-year-old house. It's a really old German town. And he says, uh, would you like to take a tour of the town? We were like, sure, great. So he takes us on the tour of this very historic town. And I noticed that all the architecture is the same. Uh, all of the houses are made with this like sort of beige stucco, and they have these orange ceramic tiles on the roof. And then we get to one building, which is gray and rather shabby looking, and I knew immediately what it was. But I feigned ignorance, and I said to our host, so what was that building? And he looked at me and he said, that was the synagogue until 1938 which sent some shivers up my spine. But then what he said next uh, really did that. He said, my grandmother, the person whose house we were staying in, which who we never met, by the way, uh, my grandmother was in charge of rounding up all the Jews in Gelnhausen in November of 1938 and deporting them. I later learned that all of them were murdered. But at the, even at the time, it was very upsetting, and it was so upsetting that I couldn't even speak. And we continued the tour, and we played the show that night, and this is bouncing around in my head. And later that night, we returned to the house. And I'm thinking, should I confront this guy? Should I say something? I didn't know what to say. I guess I was tactful to a, a fault. So anyway, we get there, and he points to two members of the band, says there's a bedroom on the first floor. You guys can stay there. There are two beds. And he points to my cousin and me. My cousin was the drummer in the band. And he says, there are two beds up in the attic. You can stay in there. So we go up this long flight of stairs. I turn on the switch, and I cannot believe what I see, which is a room that's absolutely festooned, if that's the right word, with Nazi memorabilia. Flags, banners, medals, citations, weapons, photos of this guy in his SS uniform. The guy was his grandfather, who also lived in that house. Now, what I don't remember is if the grandfather was living at that time or not. I've done extensive research. I cannot find the answer. I've reached out to this guy. He will not return my emails. But it was unbelievable. It's like, you know, we're in the middle of Germany, and here's this little pocket of the Holocaust, 
And uh, my cousin, who's not Jewish, looks at me and he says, can you stay here? And I looked at him, I said, I don't know, can you? And uh, they're not being a Red Roof Inn or a Motel 6 in Gelnhausen, Germany. We, we stayed the night and it was really uncomfortable. I don't know if I slept. I probably didn't. And yet I didn't confront our host in the morning, which I wish I had now. So anyway, that's a long story, but the result of that is that I said to myself, okay, I can't deny it anymore. I can't, I can't go through life denying the, the truth, and that is that I have a Jewish soul and I need to do something about that. So uh, I decided to uh, convert. So wait, that story you were just telling from Germany that led you to believe you needed to convert, did you feel that way because what you were experiencing was hitting you so emotionally, like at such a deep level that you thought, if I didn't have this Jewish soul somewhere in me, then maybe I wouldn't care as much? Like, how were you able to separate that from, well, this was just a terrible thing that happened to people, and maybe I'm feeling this way because it was just hard to see it? It's a great question. I don't really know. But remember when I went to my mother when I was 11 years old and said, I want to be a Jew, it was in large part because I was reading about the Holocaust and I was learning about the depth and the breadth of it and the absolute destruction that had happened. And I just felt a connection to that. I don't really know why, because as you suggest, it is possible to know about the Holocaust and, and to feel terrible about what happened without wanting to con convert to Judaism, right? right? But for some reason, that's where it was leading me, both when I was 11 and then later when I was in my 20s. Okay, so you just mentioned this idea of converting, but before you tell that story, I just want to kind of set the stage of what's going on at these other pieces of your life. So you've, you've graduated college. What was your degree in? It was in uh, mass communication radio. Okay, but you took that degree and you said, but right now my heart is in music, so I'm going to put a pause on what I thought I was going to do, and I'm going to pursue music and see where that goes? Kind of. I did work at WBUR, which is a an NPR station in Boston, big, big NPR station, for two years right out of college. And uh, at that time, I was also in the band. I was doing both, which uh, turned out to be quite a conflict because the band was really taking off in uh, late 1986, early 1987. And I ended up leaving WBUR in the fall of 87 to make the band full time. So I did the band full-time from 87 to 92, and then went back to WBUR at that time. Okay, so given those time frames you just gave, what year is this conversion story you're about to tell? That was in 1992. So after the band broke up, I was really thinking about family life and getting married. I was not married at this point, although, you know, had been with Natalie the entire time. So in December of 1991, actually, I proposed to her. And she said, uh, I suppose we're going to have to find a justice of the peace or a, a reform rabbi to marry us. And I said, no, I don't want either of those things. She says, well, then what are we going to do? I said, I want to convert. Very shortly after that, we started studying with an institute in the Boston area called the Gayrim Institute, which was basically, you know, an offshoot of the conservative movement. And we started learning together, and it was great. I have to say it was great. Learned a lot, started participating. It felt like a good fit for me. And in June of 1992, almost exactly 30 years ago, I 
completed my conservative conversion with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> but did you at the time know there was another type of conversion? Like as you and I have interviewed people who were not Jewish and they converted, not even realizing that there was conservative and orthodox. They kind of thought, whatever you do, and okay, now I'm Jewish. I'm sort of home free. I'm I'm in the club now. Is that what you thought at the time? Yes and no. The more I learned, the more I was learning that there was this sort of rift between the Orthodox and conservative movement. And to the credit of the Geirim Institute and to the rabbi, the rabbis who were teaching us, they made it clear. They said, you're, you're not going to be accepted, most likely, in Orthodox communities and Orthodox shuls. You have to ask yourself if you're okay with that. And at first, I was okay with that because I thought, well, what are the chances that I'm going <laughs> to do that? But I mean, I'm trying to find the, the correct and, and diplomatic way to say this. I became aware that there were certain outlooks and leniencies that I was very uncomfortable with regarding the conservative movement. And really from the day that I went to the mikvah, I started questioning whether that was going to be enough, whether I'd be happy with that. And I didn't see how that would change, but I started thinking about it even then in 1992. So that's going to lead us into the part of the story where you go from conservative to orthodox, but we overlooked one thing because you had this time period you're talking about with music where the band was taking off. So let's backtrack just for a moment so that our listeners get a sense of just what your band was up to and the type of music that you were playing. So that's you singing. Is that you playing guitar and your cousin is on the drums? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, me singing lead and my cousin Jeff Oliphant on the drums and Steve Michener on the bass and Bill Gaffrier on background vocals and playing that nice little signature guitar line. Great guys, wonderful brothers. We had uh, six really great years together. We accomplished more than 99% of bands are able to accomplish. We put out a bunch of records. I love our songs still. We made a huge mistake by signing to a major label in 1990, which has essentially destroyed our career. Uh, but um, we, we toured North America, Europe, put out lots of records, and our, our music is still being used in movies, TV ads, video games. And uh, it's nice to see that we have some longevity. So wait, I can't just let that go. You just said we made a major mistake by signing with 
a major record label, which I would think as any band is coming up, they're hoping to get noticed. And if a big record label comes to them and wants them, this is the beginning of the dream come true. So your story didn't go in that direction. No, it, it really didn't. I mean, at the time, in our heyday, we were what would be called an indie rock band, meaning we were on an independent label out of Long Island, actually, Homestead Records, which was definitely the coolest label or one of three coolest labels in the country at the time. And, you know, there were advantages and disadvantages to being on that label. And one of the disadvantages was that they didn't have a lot of money and resources to promote records and get them into stores. And we were getting a lot of airplay across the country and not just on the college radio stations. Uh, but we, that wasn't translating into sales. We're working very hard. We're touring incessantly and we're not selling any records. So when the big label started sniffing around the indie world back in the late 80s, there was a buzz about a lot of bands. We were being told that we were going to be like the big band to break into uh, the major label world. I never really believed that. That band ended up being Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, as a side note, uh, when they published Kurt Cobain's diaries a few years ago, he listed one of our songs as one of his top 10 favorite songs. Wow. It, it's very grueling work. It's very hard work. And we decided we just can't do it anymore. And at that point, 1992, I was definitely ready for marriage and family life and for uh, exploring the spiritual tradition that I knew that I had been attracted to from a very young age. So that's a good transition back to your story. So you're leaving music behind. So what do you go into career-wise? Do you and Natalie now start a family? And how are you raising your kids? So, yeah, in 1992, uh, the day after I quit the band and broke up the band, I get a call. Uh, the rumor mill was, was working very hard overnight, I guess. I get a call from uh, a former colleague at WBUR. And um, offered a full-time job with benefits, which for a guy about to get married was a, a really good idea. So I went to, back to WBUR, and shortly after my return, we started this national sports program called Only a Game. We uh, launched in July of 1993, and we ran for 27 years. It was mostly a joy. The host, Bill Littlefield, was and is a wonderful friend. And we had a lot of talented producers come and go. And it uh, didn't end on the most positive notes, but uh, that's okay. Here I am doing other work that I love. And uh, as far as family life goes, so Natalie and I got married in uh, October of 1992, bought a house in our hometown in 1993. And our daughter, Marley, was born in June of 1998. So very, very busy years as first-time homeowners, first-time parents, and full-time career people. Got it. And so is the plan for your daughter to go to public school, and are you affiliated with a conservative shul that you're going to regularly or semi-regularly? What, what role is religion playing in your life as you start raising your daughter? We were sort of marginally observant. We still belong to the shul in Malden, that Natalie and her family belonged to and grew up in. And then we transitioned to the conservative shul here in Natick. And, you know, Marley had a baby naming, and we uh, we weren't observing Shabbos, really. We were definitely always observing Passover and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It actually wasn't until much later 
that uh, we started going to the shul for Shabbos and becoming uh, very close to the wonderful community there. But the shul you're going to when you start going more regularly is a conservative shul or an orthodox shul? At first, it was a conservative shul, which had and still has a wonderful community. Absolutely love the people there. But again, my sort of misgivings about certain aspects of conservative Judaism, they started bothering me again a lot. And I started becoming interested in learning some Hasidus, so I started attending classes at the Chabad Shul right down the street and was completely energized by that from the beginning. But of course, there's that nagging question, am I going to be accepted there? That's not what I thought you were going to say. I, I thought you were going to say, I'm learning these things, and the nagging question is, do I want to incorporate into my life some of the things that I'm learning? But you were coming from the other side of it of, would they accept me, I guess, given my background? Well, I mean, I mean, to answer my own question, they they accepted me. They encouraged me to learn. They were always friendly and welcoming. By they, I mean Rabbi Fogelman and his wife, Chani, and uh, all the congregants there, really. And so I started learning more and doing more. And then eventually I made the transition from the conservative shul to the Chabad shul, started going there every Shabbos. And for all the Yomim Tovim, started to become very involved there, became the the guy who put up and took down the sukkah with some help, and <laughs> uh, the guy who put up and took down the Hanukkah menorahs on the town commons. I just became very energized by doing those things and becoming more involved. But of course, I couldn't have an aliyah. There's certain things I, I couldn't do. I wasn't counted in a minion. So they were being clear with you about the fact that Maybe in your mind you felt you had converted and you were Jewish, but they were being very honest and straightforward with you, saying that's not a Orthodox conversion, so it doesn't count in the same way, like they explained all this to you? Yeah, and they did it very respectfully and, and diplomatically. So, you know, there was never any confrontation. And I think that was in no small part because I was right up front and honest from the beginning. I didn't try to deceive anybody. Okay, but so as you're getting turned on by this, I would think there's also conversations with Natalie about what you're experiencing and what that might mean for your home life. And because I know you, you mentioned your daughter, but we should also give a shout out to the fact that a son comes into the picture at some point also, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's, the second child always gets neglected. I'm, <laughs> it's terrible. But uh, yeah, Daniel was born in 2000. And so we're, you know, we're raised, you know, we're, we consider ourselves to be a Jewish family. And we're doing Jewish things, just not a lot of Jewish things. And we, we keep a certain version of kosher in the home. I was pretty proud of our kashrus in the home. And, um, you know, so we're, we're kind of going along. But I, I started feeling very sort of uninspired by the conservative message. People in that world call conservative and reconstructionist and reform Judaism, they call it liberal Judaism. I don't find it particularly liberating. I consider it to be sort of reductionist. Well, that's what the Orthodox say, but we don't need to worry about that. And that kind of bothered me. Because on the one hand, I, I don't think people should be compelled to do things that they're uncomfortable doing. But I also think it's not a good idea to throw away the tradition and the practices just because they're inconvenient. So I felt like I had more capacity for observance but, of course, that's tricky 
because, you know, you have to make sure that everyone in the family is at least somewhat on board. But at first that was mostly doing, you know, family events, menorah building workshops, shofar building workshops, visits from the uh, kosher food truck. Those are always really fun. And they allowed us to get to know that community really well. And then in uh, probably, I don't know, 2015 or so, I started going to the Chabad Shul full-time for Shabbos and Yom Tov. And then it started getting a little bit more like, hey, what's going on, Gary? You know, what's what's going on here? What's, what's the end game? It, it went fairly smoothly, except when I started getting much more interested and involved in Chabad, I think I was pushing my family a little too hard to maybe adopt some of the things that I was adopting. And that was not a good thing to do, as it turns out. And it wasn't until a little while after that that I relented that my wife and my two kids started exploring Torah Judaism on their own terms. And I'm really happy to say that my wife and my two kids have found their own way through Torah Judaism, and they're still wrestling with it a bit, as I am. But it's positive growth, and that's only a good thing. And then you just said that at Chabad, they started saying, like, what's the end game? So is this leading to a conversation of, I want to do the Orthodox conversion at this point? Well, actually, that was a conversation with my wife, like, what's the end game? And it was, I'll never forget this. We were preparing to move from the house that we sold a year and a half ago, and Rabbi and Rebetzin Fogelman called and, and said, why do you think it is that you haven't had an Orthodox conversion yet? Which surprised me a little bit, because, of course, in the Orthodox world, no one sort of pushes the idea at all. But I had spoken with Rabbi Fogelman about this quite a bit, and I had shared with him that, that I had hoped to make that happen someday. And I didn't have an answer for him, except that I said, maybe I need to work on my midos, my characteristics, and Rebetz and Fogelman said, no, that's not it at all. She says, you have a pure and holy soul, which hit me like a ton of bricks. Because what she was essentially saying was, now we need to take the final step to reveal that. And Rabbi said, I think it's because you know, we were waiting for you to buy a home in this neighborhood so you could walk to shul. But I think what you need to do is go to the Bezdin and declare your, your intention to have an Orthodox conversion, and then everything else will fall into place. So shortly thereafter, that's what I did. Uh, uh, April of 2021, I applied for an Orthodox conversion with the Boston Rabbinical Court. And in June of last year, I went with Rabbi Fogelman to meet before the Bezdin. Wow, what's amazing about that story is I'm thinking of the timeline because you talked about leaving the band in 92, and now you're talking about getting to the Orthodox conversion basically 30 years later. Yeah. I, as I said, it was a long, drawn-out story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always been sort of a uh, sort of a late bloomer in, in many ways, mm -hmm. and I guess this is another aspect of that. But I guess, you know, the Hasidic perspective would be it happened when it had to happen. Right. And then did you and Natalie say, I think we need to get married again? Yeah, we did. I mean, this was the point where I really had to make sure that my wife was okay with this. And it, it was it was not easy at times. 
there were things that she took on which was no problem for her, but there were some other things that she did and still has some questions about. And um, she came with me to the Bezdin in, uh, I think that was in October of last year, and they asked her some tough questions. And they asked me many, many, many tough questions. And um, they gave me the green light uh, in October. And uh, they said, okay, here's the deal. You got to get married in, it was, I think it was like a week and a half. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have to plan a wedding. We have to separate. Planning a wedding over two years is, is a challenge enough. Planning a wedding in a week and a half with two Shabbases uh, included in that week and a half when we're not planning at all. Uh, mm -hmm. was a real challenge, but we did it, and thank God we were married on 29 Cheshvan of, uh, I guess, this year. <laughs> <laughs> so can I say mazel tov to you and Natalie? Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was wonderful. It was really joyous, and the most beautiful thing of all was having our children there with us. It was right. just fantastic. You know, you said to me how before you went through with this, you wanted to make sure that Natalie was on board. Did you have that kind of conversation with your kids also? Did you need, quote, their blessing about doing this? Or was it a different feeling because you're their parents as opposed to what you have with your wife? Uh, we, we did talk about it, but it was never a difficult conversation because my kids were 100% behind it. To their credit, they were totally supportive from the beginning. And they're like, Dad, yeah, you got to do this. You know, this is usually the point in the interview where we ask our guests what's on their bucket list for the next three to five years. But given the way you've described the pace that you move, I'm going to have to ask you, what are you planning for the next 30 years? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, I'm still reeling from the last two and a half years between COVID, my wife and I losing not only jobs, but our careers. She worked as a music buyer for a big record chain for over 30 years. And uh, that's that's gone. That's that's never coming back. And um, selling a house, moving to an apartment, moving to a new house two weeks ago, uh, religious conversion, both our kids graduating college. I mean, I, I can't keep up with everything I need to keep up with. So I've been thinking about this and I don't know what's next. I, I mean, I think I'm still getting used to davening three times a day and saying all the brachas that I need to say. And learning Chumash, Tanya, Hayom Yom, reading Tehillim every day, and trying to also incorporate various Hasidic Maimorim in my daily routine. And it's been really, really challenging, not to mention starting a new business in which I'm producing podcasts, not only for the OU, this one, Saturday to Shabbos, but also a podcast called Lamplighters for Lubavitch International Magazine. And these keep me very, very, very busy. And so it's really kind of hard for me to say what's next. I, I hope to get settled into this house before long. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I hope to grow the business. And I hope that I can take on more, more Hasidic learning. I hope that mostly my wife and my kids continue to grow because there's so much and uh, my daughter is now moving into a Moshe house, which I had never heard of before, where she's essentially doing outreach to young Jewish singles and professionals, which is amazing. It's like a Chabad house without the shluchim. Uh, my, my son just graduated from college, but he's been very close to his shluchim in Burlington, Vermont. 
and he's definitely grown over the last four years. He's learning with a rabbi there and putting on tefillin. So as long as we grow as a family, I'm happy. We don't need to be perfect. I don't think Hashem expects that anyway, but I hope that we can just continue to grow and to be happy with that and to be happy with each other and to be happy and healthy and God willing for Natalie and me to hear the pitter-patter of grandchildren's feet in our lovely new home right around the corner from our Chabad shul. Amen. And I think we should check our booking calendar to see if we have an opening in 2052 to interview you again to see how the story <laughs> unfolded. Amen. I'll be pretty old then, but uh, only three quarters of the way to 120. Very nice. So we usually close our interviews with something called the lightning round. Are you familiar with that, Gary? Uh, refresh my memory, Jeff. What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here I thought that you're listening in on the interviews. You should know exactly what it is. I know you're kidding with me. So we're going to jump in and ask you some quick questions. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so we played that sample of your music. Are you still active as a musician these days? Unfortunately, no. I've been so busy with the things that I mentioned before over the last two and a half years that I rarely even have time to pick up my guitar and play a little bit. And so the next time that I come up to the Boston area to visit my cousins, I'm going to be counting on you to tell me a great kosher restaurant to go to. So what, where will you be sending me? I will be definitely going with you to, <laughs> to a veggie crust in Brookline. Not to be confused with Veggie Crust in Somerville, which is not kosher, but owned by the same people, but not kosher. But uh, Veggie Crust Brookline is kosher, and it's a dairy Indian slash pizza restaurant. And absolutely everything we've had there has been fantastic. But overall, the, the kosher restaurant scene in the Boston area is not what you would call particularly strong. Kind of like your baseball team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do that. Actually, they've been, they've been coming on a little bit lately, so uh, you never know. There might be a, a Yankees-Red Sox standoff again this year. Right. I think our listeners just found out what you and I talk about after we stopped the recording <laughs> button. But let's stick with your lightning round. Okay. Um, so, okay, so we're going to go to that restaurant together, and then maybe we'll spend a Shabbos together. So what is a delicious item I'm going to find on the Wallach Shabbos table? Uh, you know, my, my wife does a beautiful, traditional Ashkenazic Shabbos meal, bone-in chicken for sure. She scolded me about suggesting, you know, boneless chicken. It's got to be bone-in chicken because you get all that beautiful schmaltz that you can dip the challah in. And she does, you know, potatoes, kugel, vegetables, and of course challah, very, very traditional. In the winters, when I feel inspired, I sometimes do a more exotic Shabbos. I've done Indian Shabbos meals before with dal machni and what else? Chicken curry, coconut soup, uh, delicious eggplant dish. So, uh, and, and also a West African peanut chicken stew, which you put in a Dutch oven and uh, you, you roast it very slowly and it's absolutely out of this world. Well, I think I'm free this Shabbos now that you've uh, wet my appetite with all the delicious things that you're serving. Anytime, Jeff, but uh, the West African peanut chicken stew probably won't be in the offing until at least November. Fair enough. Okay, so last question in the lightning round. So we've covered your Orthodox conversion. So can you give advice to anyone who's in a similar position to you or in terms of advice you'd give them, people they should talk to or books they should read? How can you help them along the way? I think it depends on the person. I would say that, first of all, for anybody considering Orthodox conversion, be ready for setbacks or perceived setbacks. A setback is actually a descent for the purpose of ascent. 
meaning you're being taken low so that you can go even higher. Be ready for those because you don't know exactly how those are going to happen. Read, 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 read. I think one of the best books for anyone to read is How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household by Blue Greenberg, which actually was required reading in the conservative conversion course that I took more than 30 years ago, which I thought was a great choice. Blue Greenberg does a great job not only of talking about Jewish practice and custom and halacha, but also showing how these things sort of express themselves in day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year Jewish life. I think that's a great book. I'd say for people who are interested in Hasidic learning, B'nai Avraham Ahuvecha by Dov Ben Avraham is fantastic. It's subtitled Geirim in Hasidic Thought. I would say read, explore, learn, go to Chabad.org, go to OU's many resources and learn everything you can and follow the trail that Hashem is leading you on with his many, many breadcrumbs. This is good advice from a man who walked this path. So, Gary, the good news is you are out of the lightning round. You can go back to your producing chair. And I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> 2052. Amen. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.